May our thoughts, words, and actions be holy and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Gospel that we just heard is from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. These are the first words of that Gospel. I'm not sure if you've had a chance, but if you had and you listened to Nancy and I chat about the Gospel of Mark, we spoke about the brevity of this particular Gospel. And we see it in the portion that we read this morning so vividly. There is no birth narrative. No shepherds keeping watch, no angels singing glory to God in the highest, no Mary and Joseph, just straight to John the Baptist and the wilderness. For Mark, this is where the story of Jesus begins with someone preparing the way. The author of Mark introduces John's purpose with words from the prophets Malachi and Isaiah about preparing the way of the Lord. We heard part of the portion of Isaiah this morning that he is quoting. And these words aren't just descriptive. What they are doing is they're tying John to the prophetic tradition. The words of the prophets tell us that we're going to hear about another prophet and that other prophet is John. And it's not just these words of Scripture that tell us that. It's his location, his clothing, and his diet. John is sort of a strange man living out in the wilderness. And the wilderness in the Hebrew Scriptures is a sacred place. It's where people go to find God. Right beyond this passage, we hear of Jesus' baptism and then his journey into the wilderness for 40 days. The wilderness is also the place where prophets come from. The prophets are often set up in opposition to the rulers, to the kings, the kings in the city, and the prophets coming out of the wilderness to chastise them, to rebuke them, to try and encourage them to return to God. Both the hairy garment made out of camel's hair and the leather belt around his waist are intended to identify John with the prophet Elijah, specifically Elijah. Elijah was promised to return before the Messiah came. We're not exactly sure what his diet signified, but it could have been for purity reasons, as no one else would have touched the grasshoppers or the wild honey, so they would have no chance to become impure. It could be for aesthetic reasons. Whatever all of these things, all of these reasons, what we have is we have a man in the wilderness who is unlike others. And everything about him proclaims that he is different, that he's a prophet. People came from all over to hear John, to be baptized by him, to repent of their sins, not 
only people from the countryside, the denizens of the bustling metropolis of Jerusalem. We heard in the gospel people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people out of Jerusalem were going to out to him. We can imagine farmers and laborers and scholars and merchants and wealthy and poor all coming out to see John. And I'm fascinated by this. It seems kind of strange and different to me. Everybody going out from all over the countryside, from the big urban centers, just to hear someone preach, just to hear someone baptized, to see that, to participate in it. I don't think this would happen today. I don't think people from all over Massachusetts would go just to hear one person teach and preach. What would draw together such a disparate crowd in our day and age? Maybe a famous musician, a concert at the Garden, or the Red Sox, or maybe some spectacular restaurant and everybody wants to try their food. I don't think there's necessarily an equivalent, but something like this was going on 2,000 years ago. The prophets weren't just spiritual people. They were also cultural heroes. They were part of the culture. And the opportunity to see one in real life, one who actually might be Elijah, we find, must have been a huge draw and incredibly exciting. But I don't think it was just some quasi-celebrity status or the lack of anything else better to do that drove people out into the wilderness. It was something more. A voracious hunger. A great longing for God. A desire to feel the sacred presence among them. A need to be present in a holy space without mediation. Without all the things you have to go through at the temple. But to just be with God. Desire, hunger, longing. These are tricky things. So much of what we do is actually motivated by these urges. Desire for a better life compels us to make changes, to seek a better job, to get a better living situation. The hunger for justice and righteousness calls us out of what we find comfortable and into strange and uncharted places. We can look at our own community. Many of you have been called to the South End in Boston to meet people whom you would never know. And likewise, many of you have been called to the prisons here in Concord to reach out by this hunger for justice and righteousness. Longing for connection drives us to seek out meaningful and lasting relationships, kindred friendships, romantic relationships, the growing and expanding of our own family is in part driven by this longing. The impetus for change is the desire for something different. 
something more than what we currently have. In the time of John the Baptist, people had a sacred hunger. But we have to be careful here because in our world there is a clear distinction between what is sacred and secular, and that distinction really wasn't around in the time of John. At the time, the whole region was under Roman control. And sometimes this could be an incredibly oppressive regime, and the people longed for someone to liberate them. The promised Messiah who would come and save God's people. And so their desire that brought them into the wilderness was for God, but it was also intertwined with a hunger for their own literal freedom. Their longing, their desire brought them into the wilderness. And there they repented of their sins, were baptized, and heard about Jesus, who was coming with the Spirit's baptism. So while they went into the wilderness longing for change now, they heard of the one to come who would bring a deeper and more profound change. Frequently we think of desire and longing and hunger as negative things, as things to be rectified. Consider in your own life, when we're physically hungry, we get something to eat in order to satiate that feeling. These are not the most comfortable states to be in, because it means we're lacking someone. We're lacking something, that, that, that someone or something is missing from our lives, that there is some deficit. However, these times are deeply fertile. These times can produce a lot of fruit. We frequently say, and you've probably heard it a lot of times, that Advent is a time of waiting. But I've never really understood what is especially sacred or holy about waiting. I think this lesson this morning helps me explain it a little bit, uh, understand it a little bit differently, because it's in the waiting that we experience absence. In Advent, we particularly focus on the absence of Christ. Jesus is not present with us. Jesus, who promised to return, has not returned yet. The promised kingdom is not fully here. The reign of justice and peace, where the first are last and the last are first, is not here. This world that we're living in is so broken. Sometimes we are so broken. And these missing parts give birth to the desire, hunger, and longing. Those moments that open the possibility for growth. And what do they say? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think it's something like that. In waiting, we fully feel the presence of absence. And that absence creates desire and longing 
This is how Advent reading is sacred and holy. The absence draws us closer to God. It draws us deeper into the mystery of the Trinity. And in this particular season of Advent, in 2020, the waiting and the desire and the absence and the longer longing and the hunger are more profound, more immediate, more present, because we're here in the middle of a pandemic and so much is missing. We feel the absence so deeply. We miss time with those we love. Meals shared, physical touch, normal routines, the ability to gather in person as the body of Christ. It's almost as if our situation is manifesting Advent in a different and more complete way than most of us have ever experienced. Our entire lives are characterized by desire. We desperately want things to return to some semblance of normality, and they haven't. We're stuck waiting. We're caught living Advent lives. I wonder if this feeling, what I am feeling, what you might be feeling, is something like what the longing of those people 2,000 years ago who went out into the wilderness to find John felt like. The desire and the hunger that drove them to repent of their sin, to change their thinking, to find God in the words of a voice crying out. So I think we have to ask ourselves this morning, what is the longing and the desire and the hunger of this particular Advent waiting, calling us to? Are we able to see clearer the things we want to be different in our own lives and take the first steps of making that change? Are we able to better recognize the injustice and the brokenness in the world and find a way to insert ourselves into that work? Do we feel more deeply our profound need for God and for each other? Is that absence made even more known? And do these inconsolable hungers compel us to seek out something different, to change, to find a different way forward? Now, I'm not trying to say make lemonade out of lemons, rather that the sacredness of waiting lies in desire, hunger, and longing. And we're experiencing these things so deeply right here and right now. I hear the words of Second Peter when asking what we do when waiting for Christ's time. And the author says to strive to be found by Him at peace without spot or blemish. This is active waiting. Waiting means acting into the absence, inhabiting the longing, and finding peace in the midst of all of this uncertainty. So this Advent season, 
Let us be active. Let us live into the waiting, feeling the absence deep in our bones. Let the desire and the hunger and the longing well up in us and listen to where God is calling us, where these holy urges are compelling us to be and what they are calling us to do. I think this is what it means to wait. And this is what it means to be Advent people. Waiting and hoping and praying for Christ's return and the coming of that promised kingdom.